welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and descended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, January 11th, we are studying 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-6. to In today's text, St. Paul tells the Corinthians that they are his letter of recommendation, and he speaks of the confidence that he has through Christ toward God, who alone gives sufficiency to the ministers of the New Covenant. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Appold. Pastor Appold serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appold, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks for having me back, Tim. Good to be on with you. So we get started today. Give us some context. What should we know about this epistle and what's been leading up to our section in chapter 3? Yeah, up to up to chapter three has been a lot of um, well, chapter one is kind of a general overview. You know, he's he used the word comfort. I'm sure you you made note of this with your guest um, as many times as you possibly can in that right. first chapter, comfort and affliction. And I think that that kind of gives us the um, the gist of the entire epistle. It's going to be an epistle of comfort in the midst of affliction, um, resurrection following. Uh, death or some experience like death. And then in chapter two, uh, he recounts a little bit of kind of the the time, this is the way that I read it, Pastor Apple, is the time between 1 Corinthians, the writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So what has happened in that time span? And I don't think it's a very long time span. Uh, just a couple of months is what I is the way that I kind of take it. And I think that's uh, traditional, but a lot has happened in that time. Um, if if our listeners are familiar with 1 Corinthians, they may know that first the, the congregation in Corinth had lots of issues, and that's what 1 Corinthians is all about. And um, I think what, what happened between 1 and 2 Corinthians is that there is an initial uh, kind of resistance to Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians, but that gives way to um, repentance. And this comes out later in the epistle. Chapter 7 is this beautiful chapter about the beauty of true repentance. Um, and that's the comfort that uh, that Titus brings to Paul, that he comes and he talks with Paul and he says, they've, you know, they're, they're zealous for you. They're re- they've repented. And so 2 Corinthians, I, I believe, is written in that um, with that knowledge that the, the congregation has maybe not solved all their problems. It's not like everything is just perfect, but uh, that there has been a reception of the letter. There's been a change in the congregation. Um, there's there's good things happening there. There's comfort out of that affliction. Mm. So uh, what about this matter of Paul's authority that, that seems to be in the background? It'll come up again in, in our text. What yeah. might have happened between the two epistles that this really starts to, seems dominate this epistle a lot more than the previous one? Yeah, so in, in chapter 2, right before uh, chapter 3, that's a, a shock, but in chapter 2, there's this whole discussion of um, Paul said one thing and then he did something else, or it seemed that way. To the Corinthians. He said he was going to come to them, and then he didn't. 
And so there's in the background, and this is where it gets a little bit murky for us to try to re recreate the exact um, steps, but it seems to have been something like this. At the end of 1 Corinthians, he says, all right, I'm going to come back to you after I've done some other some other work. And if, if I had a map, it would be helpful just to show um, the different places because the, the place names are probably not that familiar to us unless we've spent time in Greece and Turkey. Um, that's where Paul is is living when he's writing uh, these letters. Uh, but he's basically saying to them, I was going to come back to you, but then my plans changed. And then they kind of changed again. And uh, you can imagine why that would cause problems uh, if they're expecting one thing and it doesn't happen the way that they expected, the way that he said it was going to happen, um, especially considering the fact that there's no text messages, there's no emails, there's no phone calls. Uh, so, you know, if Paul says, I'm going to be back in a couple months and then a couple months roll around and he's not back, well, now maybe that calls into question and certainly any detractors that he he would have in the in the congregation uh, would make 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 light of that opportunity hey see he says one thing but he does something else and so he's writing there to clarify why did he do that um, and i think that's the the burden then of chapter 2 and we we get a little bit of that here in chapter 3 with this whole discussion of you know do i need a letter of recommendation or or not Hmm. All right, so let's go ahead and take a look at this text from chapter 3. We're beginning at verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. That is our text for today. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Pastor Appled, why these opening questions in verse 1? Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Do we need, like some, letters of recommendation? What's he talking about? Well, I think um, the first half of that, it, you know, he's, he's asking them, does it sound like I'm trying to over-explain myself? You know, this whole thing that we were just talking about with this... Um, I don't want to say miscommunication because it wasn't, but a changing of plans. Um, so now is he over explaining and trying to explain, you know, that's the business of, am I commending myself? Are we, you know, P Paul and his co-workers, um, Timothy and Titus and Sylvanus and all of these other men who are in the ministry with Paul, um, are they trying to sort of uh, curry favor? with the Corinthians. And he wants to rule that out because he's not, um, he'll say this in Galatians too, Paul's ministry is not a matter of being a people pleaser, right? He's a, a servant of the Lord, and so he's therefore a servant of the congregation, but he's not, um, he's not servile, right? He's not a, um, he, he doesn't have to 
uh, get favor before he can carry out his ministry with them, if that makes sense. And so I think he's he's just kind of cautioning that, hey, let's make sure we understand I'm not I'm not doing this. I'm not saying this to like just sort of um, trick you into listening to me. Uh, but I think there's there's also something there that that the Corinthians may have wanted. Hey, um, Paul, can you show us your, you know, are you really the authentic article? Are you the real deal? Um, because, you know, maybe we have questions about it, especially after this whole changing of the plans thing. And so could you prove, you know, that you're really an apostle? Like, do you have do you have Peter's per- permission to be here? Um, do you have a letter from the apostle John or even better? Could you, you know, does did Jesus write anything down on a letter for you that he signed and you could give it to us? And then we then we'll listen to you. And um, you can certainly see why that might be uh, attractive to the Corinthians, um, especially because we know from some of the things Paul will say later in this epistle, there were some uh, what he calls false apostles, uh, servants of Satan, he'll even call them um, peddlers of God's word. Uh, who may have boasted of, hey, we've got the credentials, we've got the, maybe they even carried letters, maybe they were fake letters, but they had some kind of letter, uh, perhaps, that said, we're the real deal, and hey, Paul doesn't have anything like this. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's just saying, we I don't need a letter of commendation. I, I don't need that. Is there perhaps in the background of, of this section then some of what we read in First Corinthians chapter 1 about the various factions that had been present in the congregation? Yeah, I think so. I think that that, um, you know, even if we're right to see that Second Corinthians, there's a, there's been renewal, there's been a, a repentance in the congregation. I don't think that that means that all the old problems are just automatically solved. And so certainly I think in light of the you know, some people say we're followers of Peter or we're followers of Apollos or we're followers. I can't remember. Some of them said we're followers of Paul um, and other ones said, well, we're follow we're followers of Jesus um, and not of these men. Uh, so I'm sure that there was still some of that factionalism, if not being spoken outright, it was underneath the surface there uh, because, you know, old things are not you don't just immediately forget the past. So with the letters of recommendation that he mentions, then, is this a, I mean, is there some historical background here? Are there cases where a letter of recommendation would have been carried in certain contexts that Paul has in mind? I mean, it does sound like these false apostles or sometimes the, quote, super apostles had something like this. What What's he referring to with the letter yeah. of recommendation? Yeah, I think there are um, definitely times Paul himself carried letters of authority uh, before he was called by by Jesus. But when he, if you remember back to uh, when Paul was sent out by the high priest, he had official paperwork. You know, he could, he could have showed you, hey, I have authority here from the high priest in Jerusalem to arrest Christians. I, I, so he, he used to carry, you know, that authority. He had those papers. Um, And we also know that when Paul sends his epistles, one of the things that in almost every case is part of the epistle is like we saw in first Corinthians, um, I'm sending you Timothy, receive him. You know, so the, the writings of Paul himself, Paul sends 
in a sense, his epistles serve as the letter of recommendation for whether it's Timothy or Titus or Silvanus or what are some of the other names? I think Epaphroditus came up in the Corinthian with the Corinthians too. Um, so maybe now they're thinking, hey, you know, all these other guys who come to us, they have letters from Paul, but where does Paul get his letter from? You know, who, who, authorized, who authorized him? And of course, the answer to that is that, uh, well, you could answer it two ways, right? You could say no one did. Humanly speaking, uh, no one authorized Paul. He was not part of the 12. Uh, Peter didn't say, hey, Paul, you do this. I'm going to do that. Um, it was it was Jesus. So they, that's the other way that Paul could answer this question is, I don't need a letter of recommendation because I saw the risen Christ. He, you know, I had that immediate um, apostolic call that his fellow servants didn't have. So, you know, why does why does Timothy need a letter, but Paul doesn't? Well, I think that part of the answer to that question is Timothy didn't have the immediacy. His call was mediated, uh, whereas Paul's was immediately from Jesus. And so in, in that sense, the matter of a, a recommendation has come up in this epistle already and in the first epistle in the introduction, where in the very first verse, Paul calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the yeah. will of God. So he's, he's already addressed that technically mm -hmm. speaking, in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and the the line has to stop somewhere, right? I mean, if you said, well, so Paul, you need a letter of recommendation. Okay, so like, like let's say, you know, take up the hypothetical here. If Paul needed a letter of recommendation, who would he get it from? Well, let's say he got it from Peter. But if Peter needed a letter of recommendation, who would he get it from? John? You know, who's, who's the top dog? Um, the buck has to stop somewhere. And, um, of course, ultimately, everything goes back to the desk of Jesus. Uh, but we know that Jesus uh, was not a, he wasn't a bureaucrat, right? He didn't rule from a desk. And so he doesn't send paperwork. He sends men. Um, and they have his stamp of approval. So Paul doesn't have, he can't produce the letter out of his pocket. Uh, it comes from his encounter with uh, the risen Lord. And that's kind of where the, you know, like I said, the, the buck stops there. Um, and that calls for, uh, for Paul, that calls, that gives him confidence. You know, he's not serving at the whim of another human. He's serving, unless you say it's the human uh, Lord, it's the God man, Jesus himself. Um, but it also calls for the, the congregation um, to trust that there, there's part of this is that there has to be um, some Paul needs to be credible, um, and the congregation has to um, give him that credibility. They have to trust him. Mm. So how, how does something like this come into practice in the church today? I mean, do you have a letter of recommendation to your congregation, Pastor Abbold? Uh, I do have a, what are they called? I'm trying to think of the, the technical term here. Uh, I can see Pastor Apple. Call document? Uh, yeah, I have a call document, and I have a diploma of vocation. And uh, the, there is a process that I think is, is I don't think it's wrong uh, for us to have um, vetting of pastors. And the, in fact, Paul says that that should happen, you know, that, that men should be tested um, 
he doesn't necessarily say there has to be a four-year seminary and you know this is the exact curriculum that you have to use and that you has to be through the proper accreditation agency you know some of that stuff um, can come or go uh, but there is a uh, it is important that pastors be tested that um, they prove themselves and show themselves to be apt to teach is the the term that Paul is going to use um, so that you don't have think of if we didn't have anything like that uh, if it was just sort of uh, a free-for-all um, everyone shows up there is this is not the the only argument here but there is an argument from um, simple simply good order that we need to have good order and to know who is the pastor and and who is not the pastor and and so part of that is what the um, the diploma of vocation uh, is meant to do is there also an element of of certainty on the part of the congregation that they can have that you were talking about the trust that would exist mm-hmm. between Paul and the Corinthians so that in a you know a call documents or a diploma of vocation or, or how are these things are, are worked out now that a man is placed into the pastoral office in a particular place part of the reason for that it, it seems to me would be to allow that congregation to know this is the one God has given authority to preach his word, to proclaim his absolution, to administer his sacraments here in this place, yeah. so that when those things happen, they don't have to to worry or doubt that this, is, this isn't coming from God. It's, they would, might think it's coming from man instead. Yeah, it's, it's good for the congregation and for the pastor himself, too, right? I mean, one of, one of the things, um, think about, think about a, uh, people going to visit their physician. You know, if if you don't trust your doctor, um, you're not going to listen to his, you're not going to take him up on his prescriptions, you're not going to listen to his advice on things, you're going to go and get a second opinion, maybe a third opinion, maybe a fourth opinion. Um, and that's true when you when you talk about the, the care of a person's soul, we, we would have the same questions. If I can't trust the pastor, what he's saying, what he's preaching, what he's doing, um, then that that kind of puts an impediment or a hindrance to the work of the spirit for the the congregation also for the pastor himself if he if he doesn't have certainty about what he's saying and what he's doing if he's always second guessing and the devil loves to um to do this um to make you second guess everything um then he's not going to say no when he needs to say no or yes when he needs to say yes Hmm. so it's an example of the way that this I think shows up in the life of the Christian congregation today would be the example of confession and absolution, particularly private confession and absolution, where the the question is usually asked as a part of that from the pastor to the penitent, do you believe that the forgiveness I speak is not my forgiveness, Mm -hmm. but God's forgiveness? If the, if the yes can't be uttered with certainty, there's going to be a problem there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it, that, and that would be a, a terrible situation to be in of just always you're sort of caught in uh, limbo. You're caught in no man's land. I don't, I don't really know if I'm ever hearing the word of the Lord. Um, you know, maybe, but faith needs, uh, faith wants certainty, cer- uh, a certain promise. And of course, certainty, uh, the certainty of faith is not always provable in the sense of, you know, that there, there would always be a question in maybe the Corinthians mind, did he really see Jesus? 
did the risen Lord Jesus really appear to this apostle Paul? Um, and so part of Paul's answers, it's kind of, it, it's interesting. He doesn't say, I was authorized, I was commended by Jesus. You know, that's what I would almost in a way expect him to say. What he says instead is, um, you are, the your existence as a Christian congregation is the proof of my authenticity or of my authority or of my um you know, commendation. You, Corinthians, you are the letter of recommendation. Hmm. So what? I, t- take us into that, because that's, that's a big part of this section. What does that mean, that the, the Corinthians are his letter of recommendation? Yeah, it's almost, uh, and it, it seems like maybe he's he's skipping some steps of, of the logic here, but it's almost like this. Um, the fact that you're asking this question proves that I'm a real apostle. <laughs> you know, um, if if you if you didn't if I was not a real apostle, this is this is maybe how to put it, Tim. If I was not a real apostle, there would be no congregation there in Corinth, and therefore you would not be asking these questions to me. Um, you wouldn't be asking me for a letter of recommendation if you hadn't been established. And who this goes back to Paul's own um, personal experience in Corinth. Who was it who founded the congregation there? It was Paul. And nobody asked him back then, are you really an apostle? Um, and so it, it's a little bit of this argument from, um, you know, kind of, I, I don't know what the technical, you know, logical terms are here, but it's an argument from uh, sort of the conclusion is assumed. Uh, I am a real apostle. And the, the fact that you exist is the proof of it. You know, it'd be like my son saying to me, are you really a father? I would say, well, yes, you, you're the proof of it. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, and, and I, I mean, I understand that, especially in the case of Paul, who is an apostle. But there, there are, I suppose, there's plenty of false preachers out there that can gather themselves a congregation, and that doesn't, that doesn't prove that they're a real apostle just because they gathered a congregation. So what's the, like, what's the difference between Paul saying that and a, a false apostle or a false preacher saying, look, I've got a congregation. I must be the real deal. Yeah, you're right. Anyone could say, um, well, look, some people listen to me. Therefore, everyone should listen to me. That that almost seems to be the, the argument there, right? Um, but I think that that here, what Paul is is assuming is part of this is um, you know, you Corinthians know everything that I've done. And he's, he's going to make this explicit later in the epistle. You know, he's going to talk about all the things that he's suffered. He's going to talk about all the, you know, there, it's called the catalog of, uh, of sufferings. He's going to, he's going to list it out line by line. I suffered this, I suffered that, I suffered this, I suffered that. Um, and he says, that's his other argument for why he's, you know, a real apostle, which again is a strange to us, kind of a strange argument. Um, but in Paul's mind, the proof of, uh, of authority, the proof of apostleship is not in who can boast of, um, you know, the paperwork. It's in the actual doing of the ministry. And so the, the doing of the ministry here that led to the founding of the congregation was, well, you experienced it. I preached the gospel to you, um, and it had its effect. And it's almost like, um, I think in the large catechism, Luther kind of talks about infant baptism this way. Um, he says, look, if, if one of the arguments for why we baptize infants uh, kind of goes like this. Um, 
for a long time now, when Luther's writing, the church has only baptized infants, right? Um, and if that weren't proper, the church wouldn't exist, but it does. Therefore, infant baptism is is good. Uh, now, there's other there's other things that can be said, but it's a similar line of of thinking there. And I'm not sure that I'm doing it justice, but um, I see you at least nodding your head a little bit. No, I, I think it. I think it makes sense. Uh, again, in the specific context in which Paul writes it, and the way that you connected it to the sufferings, I think is helpful, especially given what he's said already in chapter one about how when he experienced sufferings and the sentence of death that he talks about, that was all for the Corinthians' comfort. So you you put those two things together, then, and you do. You have this letter of recommendation. The fact that you Corinthians are here receiving comfort in the gospel, combined with the fact that I am suffering for the sake of the gospel, this is a, a letter of recommendation mm-hmm. that this is a this is the real deal. This is the actual, again, to kind of look forward a little bit, the ministry of the new covenant that's taking place among you, because these things are, are evidence of it. Yeah, and think of, you know, the, the Corinthian experience here is not, it wasn't just Paul came in and told us we were really good people deep down and that God loved us. You know, there was there were some really hard there's a lot of hard things that have been worked through. You know, there was there's been calls to repentance. There's been uh, the sorting out of lawsuits among believers and uh, sexual cases of sexual immorality and um, disorderly worship and the you know, the eating the distinction of um of meats sacrificed to idols. So it's not like it was Paul's appealing to sort of a smooth ministry. He's yeah. appealing to uh, all the stuff that has happened through uh, what we know as First Corinthians um, and the repentance that has been brought about through that epistle. So I think it's a little different in that way from somebody just coming out today and saying, hey, some people listen to me. I have a blog online, so I must be um, you know, a real apostle. No, th- there's an appeal to the real um, nitty-gritty, t- I, I don't know a better term for it, Tim, um, the real experience of repentance and faith that has been displayed in his actual ministry. I would even connect that also to First Corinthians chapter 1, where he talks about, we preach Christ crucified, which again, that's weakness and foolishness to the world, but it is the power of salvation, the wisdom of God for us who believe. And then he, he talks about who the Corinthians were in that same chapter. He says, remember who you were. You weren't wise by worldly standards. You weren't, you weren't anything particularly important, but God chose you. God called you. And again, I think you put that into the picture as well. The Corinthians, as his letter of recommendation, becomes a lot clearer and not just sort of like, hey, you're there. I must be doing something right. But it's a sign that, yes, God has been at work through this particular preaching of Christ crucified the gospel. Yeah. And it, now he does say that you, the Corinthians, are the letter of, rec- you are our letter of recommendation, but it's not, he doesn't say, and I'm so glad that it worked because now I have confidence. You know, yeah. I was lacking in confidence and it worked and I needed, I needed this for myself. He says the rest of the world sees it. So yeah. somehow the, the church in Corinth becomes Paul's kind of the proof 
for not for himself he has the confidence that he has because of christ you know he he saw the risen jesus and so that gives him this wonderful sense of freedom and confidence to say and do all the the really hard things that the apostle paul has to say and do um but now he says your existence becomes a witness to the whole world and i think let's yeah. yeah, let's let's pick that thought up, the witness to the world on the other side of the break, because that's right there in this text where we are. Sure. So you're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor David Appled this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, January 11th. We're studying 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-6 to 6 with Pastor David Appold. He serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appold, prior to the break, you were talking about this letter of recommendation that the Corinthians are, but not for the sake of Paul, not giving him confidence. He has that confidence from Christ, as he'll make plain later in this section. Rather, they are a letter of recommendation that is to be read and known by all, so this becomes a witness to the world. Uh, tell us more about that. Yeah, he. Um, this this comes up in, in a number of places in Paul's epistles where he talks about, for instance, the, Thessalonia, the Thessalonians. Um, what happened among you, Thessalonians, has um, kind of gone out, the report about you has gone out into the whole world. And so the the example of the Corinthians, the example of the Thessalonians, and you could take that in any of the congregations, the example of your congregation, Tim, or my congregation, uh, is part of the witness that the church gives to the world, um, that there is um, a group of people who believe in Jesus, um, who repent of their sins, who turn to Christ, uh, and who call themselves Christians, that in and of itself uh, serves as an example to the world, and it's not a it's not an incidental example. The church is uh, always a sign to the world. Um, the church exists as a call um, to the Lord. You know that Jesus is Lord and no one else. Mm. Well, that that fits in with what we talked about in the previous text at the end of chapter two, where he he talks about this aroma of Christ that spreads into the world. So it, to those who are perishing, it's an aroma from death to death. For those who are who are alive in Christ, it is from life to life. So the the existence of the congregation is again that that witness to the world, mm-hmm. and and that's where I do think you know what you talked about with the sufferings earlier comes into play. Like 
look, Corinthians, because the world thinks you smell bad, that's that's a witness that the aroma sure. of Christ is being proclaimed here. We we have in our our congregation has um, been in in its current building since 1939 um, is when it was kind of finished, and uh, the what happened in Paducah there was a big flood. Uh, Paducah is right on the Ohio River. And uh, in 1937, the Ohio River flooded, and our old building uh, was in the in the part of town that was uh, deeply affected by the flood. So when they built a new church, they built the one that we're currently in. But they kept the bell, the same bell that was rung at the old uh, building is still rung at our building. And I like to think about that sometimes that for, a, you know, since at least 1939, every Sunday morning, this bell has rung and the people in the neighborhood, whether they know who we are, whether they uh, know the message of the gospel at all or not, they hear that bell ringing and it serves at least as some kind of a, a wake-up call, maybe quite literally at the early service. Um, there's people ringing a bell in that building over there. And I know it's a church. And of course, now we live in a, a, in a country where, you know, it, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who has never heard anything about Jesus. Um, it's, it still happens, and maybe it's becoming more increasingly common. But most people have heard somewhere the name of Jesus, and they know something about the church. So, simply driving through town, hearing a bell ring, seeing a church building—this is—it's all—it's not the entirety of the church's witness, but it's part of the church's witness. Um, and then even on a deeper level, the, the people themselves, the, the lives of the faithful um, Christian people serve kind of like these bells ringing um, out into the world, calling the world to, to Christ. So talk a little bit more about that, both from the, the corporate level, as you're talking about, so the congregation serving, serving as this witness, this epistle to the world, but then also the, in the life of the individual Christian serving as that epistle as well. Sure, you could. Um, I think in in First Corinthians he talks about you know what would happen if an unbeliever came into your worship and saw and heard all the things that were happening in worship, and he kind of he's part of his appeal there is um, it needs to things need to be uh, happening in the proper order so that the message can be heard. Uh, but it it's a good practice occasionally just to try to think like a you know kind of put yourself as a fly on the wall, or if if I knew nothing about uh, Lutheranism, and I walked into this church on a Sunday morning when we're actually gathered together and the church is um, in action, you know, um, the service is going on, what would I see? What would I think was happening? What would I hear? Um, you know, there's, there's a man up at the front, and he's talking from, you know, a little box. And then he goes over to a, a, a rectangular, you know, uh, stone. Our altar is, is made out of stone. I don't know what yours is, Tim. Um, he goes there and, and he turns towards away from the people and they're all bowing their heads together and they're all saying things at the same time, amen, uh, at different times, Lord have mercy at different times, you know. Um, then they go up and they they all receive a, a piece of bread and a small sip of wine, you know, and, you, and you're trying to put together what, a, what is going on. And of course, the words of the service give, um, you know, they give that the fuller witness, um, but just the action of worship itself, the bowing, the, um, the going up to the altar, the receiving of bread and wine, listening to someone else talk. I mean, all of that 
is part of the witness that we that we're giving to the world in corporate kind of worship, right? Um, and then the that's carried out, right? The way we believe and the way we worship lead to the way we live. And so the the Christian, um, it's not that you have to go out and put a, a fish bumper sticker on your car, uh, or you you don't have to include it in your your company name somehow. That this is a Christian, um, you know car mechanic, but the way that you live, the way that you act, the things that you do, maybe even more so the things that you don't do, um, that is in the, the whole, you are serving there as an epistle to the world in a sense. Um, that's what Paul is saying of a witness of, of Jesus Christ. Okay. So that, that epistle from God to the world written, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, this, all of this is the confidence, Paul says, that we have through Christ toward God. And you talked about this earlier, that although he does rightly call the Corinthians his letter of recommendation, that's not where his confidence comes from. He talks about his confidence here. What does he say in these verses? Yeah, we, we are not sufficient in ourselves, he says. Um, there's nothing in me that brought this about. And this is one of the uh, the differences between Paul and the the so-called super apostles, or what he also calls the false apostles. He he does he even freely admits, you know, I'm not that impressive when I come and talk to you in person. You know, I write I write to you very boldly, but when I speak with you, people say, and I, you know, he's it seems like he's conceding the point. I'm not I'm not like a fancy rhetorician. I'm not a great it, now. Is that true? I mean, you read what Paul writes, and you, and you got to wonder, like, what would it be like to hear him preach a sermon? It must be, I mean, it must have been good sermons. You know, he's an apostle. But in any case, there was the the um, the power of Paul's ministry doesn't come from inside of himself. It comes from outside of himself, um, from the word that he has received, from the spirit um, who works in him, from the, um, the external word. And that's important for um, Paul himself, as he's carrying out his ministry, his confidence is not that somehow, some way, he's figured out the the, the marketing secret um, to sell Christ to people. Um, that's ne- that's never the way that the church grows. It grows really, truly grows um, the more and more it relies outside of ourselves on Christ uh, and the things that He has given to us. So the the sufficiency that Paul has and his confidence doesn't come from the fact that he's got this letter of recommendation in Corinth and he's got one in Ephesus at this point and there's Thessalonica and there, I mean there's a number of places where he's mm-hmm. he's got this confidence and maybe maybe Athens didn't go as well as he had hoped but he's he's at least got more positives than negatives on his scorecard that yeah. kind of he's not doing that kind of counting when it comes to this thought of a letter of recommendation. Rather, his sufficiency, his confidence is fully grounded in the fact that God is the one that's made him sufficient and can only be the one to ever make him sufficient. Yeah, yeah. And the, the sufficiency or the, the confidence is that uh, Jesus is risen. You know, it's that Jesus is risen, that he's the ascended Lord, and that Paul is, um, has become a minister of this good news, of this gospel, which is the truth. Um, whether anyone in Corinth believe, you know, whether five people in Corinth believe it or 500 people in Corinth uh, believe it or 5,000 um, doesn't change the truth 
the trustworthiness of, um, of Christ's resurrection and ascension, and also of his choosing Paul to be an apostle. So, I mean, this, this too, it seems, fits very well with the context of 1 Corinthians uh, in chapter 3 of that epistle, where he's talking about, you know, what's, what's Paul, what's Apollos? We're the servants. One watered, one planted. God gave the growth. So it, the ministry, again, it's just as he talked about it in the first epistle, so he talks about it here. The ministry all depends on God providing the, the work, the growth, the sufficiency, and the apostles, the pastors, they're the servants, and yeah. that's, that's enough. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that, that actually energizes Paul um, rather than, because you could say everything that you just said, Tim, and said, and so it doesn't really matter, you know, I don't really have to do much. I can just take it easy because, but, but see, that's, that's not what the gospel actually does. When um, the confidence that Paul has and the sufficiency that comes from outside of himself, it actually energizes him to do things like suffer all kinds of stuff and it seems like he is the energizer bunny you know the apostle paul just never quits he keeps going and going and going um and how you know what gives him that ability well it comes from the spirit uh who who works this in him it's not his own personality traits it's not his own you know just sheer determination i mean the spirit might use all that but it but it does ultimately come from god and not from paul now, this, this passage from 2 Corinthians 3 is usually read during ordinations and installations of pastors still today. I forget which, which section it falls under, if it's maybe the promises given to the holy ministry. I'm not, not positive, but it's usually read as a part of installations and ordinations. Why, how does this work for pastors still today? Why is this an important verse for pastors especially to have? Oh man, if if uh, this is so important, it's so critical just because of the nature of the ministry. Um, the nature of the pastoral ministry is uh, that take take preaching a sermon, for instance, Tim. I'm sure that every pastor has had this experience. You get up in the pulpit, um, and you you know you've put in the work that week to to you've got what you think is a great sermon, and you preach it, and afterwards, almost immediately. You know, you go back and maybe the, during the offering or, or while the offertory is being sung, all of a sudden here comes this question. Is that really what, is that the best you could do? Is that really what it says? Is that really what the people needed to hear? What about this? What about that? What about this other thing? So there's always this um, this doubt. And I um, somewhere in my the recesses of my mind, I've got some memory of Luther saying that the pastor, that that's always from the devil. You know, um, now maybe he's over exaggerating the point because it's not wrong to critique yourself and to to strive for. You always want to be doing better. Um, I think that's good for us, but that can be crippling too if you're always second guessing and wondering. Um, you know, is am I really cut out for this? Do I do I know the exact right words to say? Um, whether to bring comfort in this situation or to bring about repentance, you know, if it's up to me, I'm I'm not sufficient for it. Uh, but because it's not my doing, whether we're talking about the preaching of the law um, that works repentance, or the preaching of the gospel which strengthens faith, um, those things are outside of me. Uh, and yes, I'm required to to 
to the best of my ability to uh, to distinguish these things and to give to each in their proper time. Uh, but it's ultimately not about me. It's about the work of Christ and about the word of Christ um, doing the work in the life of the church. What you were saying about about the pastor who who rightly says, oh, I, I could have said that better, or I should have included this, or maybe left that part out, and who thinks about those things within his own ministry, that, that sounds a lot like what you were saying with the Apostle Paul, that the fact that he knows he doesn't have sufficiency, sufficiency in and of himself actually energizes him to work harder. So it should be for the, the pastor still, that because the pastor now realizes, oh, I can't do this on my own, that does yeah. then energize him not to just get up in the pulpit on Sunday morning and say whatever comes to mind, but actually to spend more time with the scriptures, to spend more time preparing, to think about the best way to communicate these things, yeah. always in an effort to continue in that work that the Lord has given, knowing that it ultimately doesn't depend on him, it only depends on the Lord. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the um, common pitfalls it's not every diff, pastors are different, right? And so there, there's going to be a, a, there's a whole array here. Um, but one of the common temptations for pastors is um, that so much of you know externally speaking, so much of what seems to make the congregation healthy, what seems to make people want to be part of it and, and to be excited is or re- seems to revolve around the personality of the pastor. Is he funny? Uh, is he personable? Um, is he um, is he how old is he? Um, what is what does he look like? What does his family look like? You know, all of these things um, can be easily become what the congregation kind of gets built around. Uh, and when that happens, it might go good for a little while, but it it finally isn't going to stand. You know, um, Paul in First Corinthians talks about some build with gold and silver and precious stones and some build with straw and wood and, and hay. Uh, and all of it is going to get revealed through test, through the fire of testing and trials. Um, and so I think that here is a call for um, use the, you know, pour yourself into gold and silver and precious gems which is the the stuff that's outside of me um Mm. there's a time and a place for a pastor to think you know to to think about his own uh character and and his own uh, all those things i just mentioned his own you know personality uh but that's not going to be uh the emphasis in a in a really healthy uh church Mm. all right so paul says our sufficiency is from God, and God has made us competent or sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. And this idea of the ministry of the new covenant brings Paul into a contrast here that's going to be developed more in the verses that come after our text. He says, this new covenant is not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Talk about this contrast that he begins to, to bring up here in verse 6. Yeah, this is a good a good opportunity to to get out a piece of paper or get out a whiteboard or something and uh, just list out two columns, you know, because he's almost he's setting up uh, these two different, um, well, yeah, two different columns. I'm just going to stick with that. So you've got the new covenant, and therefore in the other column you'd have the old. You've got the spirit and the letter. You've got life giving and you've got death. And he's going to go on, and that's going to be the, the predominant theme for the rest of chapter 3, is kind of this comparison between the old that is passing away and the new 
that is replacing it or the new that is fulfilling it, the new that is going to be permanent there. And so I think here we would we want to uh, think through a little bit what is he saying and what is he maybe not saying is is also just as important here. Okay, so so help us with that. And I think it, if I remember right, Pastor Apple, you and I talked about Hebrews chapter ten, which talks about old and new, right? Is that am I remembering that right? Yeah, Hebrews Hebrews is good stuff to bring in here. Yeah. Do you think Paul wrote that? And he, I, he also well, wrote it here. I think I I think I did. <laughs> say that on on the radio so i gotta stand by it <laughs> okay so but let's uh, regardless of that question what's what is what is he saying when he compares uh, new to old spirit to letter life to death here what is he saying what isn't he saying yeah okay so i think just very basically and this started to come out when he mentioned the tablets of stone versus tablets of the heart so if you say tablets of stone to people who have read the Old Testament, they're going to say, oh, he's talking about Moses. He's talking about Mount Sinai. He's talking about the giving of the law, uh, what we call the Ten Commandments. And I think that's right on. Okay. So I think we would say here, um, just generally speaking, he's talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. So with the coming of Christ, the old things, the temple, the sacrifices, um, all the old stuff, that is all. Now it is old. It used to be good stuff. It wasn't bad, right? Um, the the law is good. Um, the temple was established by God. The sacrifices were given by God. Uh, but now with the coming of Christ, the, the coming of Christ um, fulfills all of everything that was. And so now in the light of Christ, all of that old stuff really is passing away. Um, it really is no longer, um, it's not that it's no longer necessary. I'm kind of struggling to, to think through this with you, Tim, but um, it no longer exists in, on its own. Hmm. Yeah, well, and that's where I think the, the letter to the Hebrews is helpful when it makes use of a, a different image when it talks about shadow and substance. So now that the substance is here, the shadow has served its purpose, so you don't hold mm -hmm. on to the shadow, you hold on to the substance. Yeah. So again, that's that's not to say that the shadow was bad, but it has served the purpose for which it was given, so don't go back to that, yeah. again, with, the, with the, the letter to the Hebrews. So here, you've got this new covenant, that's where, and again, not to go too far into the next text, but that's where the fullness of the glory lies. For as, as much good and, and glory there was in the old, it has now served its purpose to get you to the new and, and recognize the great glory that is there, which, by the way, is what Paul's preaching, the, thereby, in, a, in some sense, defending his ministry yet again, I think. Yeah, and the, and the reason we're going to, to lengths to, uh, to explain, well, okay, he's just saying old and new, so old is bad, new is good, right? Um, it's kind of like I, I can remember back in, at the seminary, you know, in our first homiletics class, homiletics is the the class where you learn how to preach, uh, or that's what you're supposed to do, right? That's um, right. <laughs> in the 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 te the professor put on the board. All right, boys, uh, tell me what words come to mind when you hear law, and tell me what words come to mind when you hear gospel. And he made a, a great point uh, that uh, oftentimes we we simp we it's almost too simplistic to just say law. Oh, that's bad. Gospel. That's good. 
um, and Old Testament. Oh, that was that was law. That was death. That was uh, that was letter and New Testament. Oh, that's gospel. That's spirit. That's life. Well, it's a little bit it's a little bit harder than that because um, even in the Old Testament, the gospel is there. You know, and and even in the New Testament, for that matter, it's not like letters go away. What is Paul doing here? He's writing with with letters. So it's not that we do, we don't want to make it too simplistic to say old is bad, new is good, letter is bad, spirit is good. And a lot of Christians do fall into this where um, the spirit, the stuff of the spirit is opposed to any kind of form, to any kind of letter. Um, and so, you know, talking about sacraments becomes uh, very difficult for, for if that's in if that's your mindset, because, um, you know, why would you do things the same way? Why would you why would you look for the spirit through, um, you know, these rites of holy baptism or the rite of the Lord's Supper? That seems like an old thing. And we know that the old things are are dead and the new right. things have to be you know, spontaneous. Well, I, I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. What he's doing is setting up this, the old passes away because the new has come. Uh, and the new incorporates some of that old stuff into itself, right? But yeah. it does so in a, in a fulfilled way. That that yeah, that was that was good. The old does incorporate some of the or the new incorporates some to the old of the old, but does so in a fulfilled way. I do think really sets the stage, and and I appreciate what you said about the matter of the letter. This does not mean that somehow the scriptures are insufficient or bad, because I mean yep. we are reading letters on a page here. It doesn't mean yeah. that forms of worship that we repeat are bad. That is a, a common trap that it seems some American Christians fall into. I, I, the connection you made to the Ten Commandments and the tablets of stone, I think, is really helpful to understand what he means by letter here and why he chooses that image. It's not to say written things are wrong, but rather to talk about specifically that ministry of the law, which has served a purpose, but now is passing away and is given giving way to something with greater glory, and that's the ministry that Paul and the apostles have. We got with with some of those thoughts, Pastor Apple, and I know it's going to come up more in the next the next text as well. So we don't yeah. have to say everything today, but with about a minute or so, help us to to wrap things up on those thoughts. This text as a whole. Well, I think the. Uh the glory of the new, I mean, he, that's where he's headed here. The glory, the the New Testament, the coming of Christ, his birth. Um, we're recording this uh, in December, so we're, we're thinking about Christmas. Um, but the, the arrival of Jesus in the flesh, his death in the flesh, his resurrection in the flesh, his ascension in the flesh, um, that's the fulfillment of the hope that was there all along in the Old Testament. Um, and the grace that was promised now has been revealed. Um, this is such a beautiful part of uh, of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5. I mean, it really is. It just, um, it it's a, it's a beautiful um, description of the New Testament, uh, the fulfillment of the old, and trying to think through the, the things that are different and the things that are the same here is, uh, it's worth its time. And even if it's not simplistic, um, it is a wonderful thing for every Christian to think through just what Christ has brought us uh, and the glory that comes through the ministry um, of Paul, 
of his fellow workers of the church now today and her pastors uh, is beautiful stuff. Pastor David Appold is pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. He's been helping us today to study 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 6. Pastor Appold, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you for having me, Tim. Our sufficiency is from God. We are not sufficient in ourselves, but he gives us that sufficiency. He does the work, and that compels us to boldness in confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 2 Corinthians 3, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.